1: Welcome, everyone, back to another edition of New Books in Education. This is your host, Ryan Allen. Today I'm excited to bring a book that I think uh, crosses over into education and history and really brings us a subject that is relevant to today, but we can understand uh, the wider implications and how we understand uh, this process and and, and this group of people today. So we have uh, The Good Immigrants, How the Yellow Peril Became the Model Minority. From Princeton University Press, and this is from the author who's joining me today on the podcast, Madeline Hsu, Associate Professor at University of Texas in Austin. Uh, Dr. Shu, thank you for joining me today.
0: Thank you for giving me the chance to talk about my
1: book. Fantastic. Well, I'm definitely excited uh, to talk about this, and it's, it's sort of uh, an interest of mine as well, and is also in education, and it's maybe not directly related to, to education, but certainly it crosses Paths education, and, and certainly uh, an interesting history book as well. Uh, so if I could, can you maybe tell me a little bit about yourself? How did you get interested in uh, this kind of research?
0: Well, my uh, training in history was actually in Chinese history, but I also have long interests in migration and uh, Asian American studies. Uh, and so uh, as I when I think about the projects, the kinds of history, the stories that I think are untold, a lot of them emerge from personal experiences or things that I have observed uh, but can't find explanations of or accounts of in standard history texts. So this was how I came to write my first book uh, and also how I came to write this um, second book. So it's... Um, you know, it's, it's it's trying to rethink relationships between different countries and different places uh, through migration, and my effort is really to try to uh, tell these stories from the perspective of the people who migrate. So a lot of times when we have histories, they're based on, you know, so you would have an account of U.S. history, or we would have an account of Chinese history. But then the people who move between place to place, it's much harder to talk about uh, their stories because a lot of times migrants are um, seen as being problems because they are not fully associated with any one place or any one country. And so a lot of the ways in which we frame histories uh, means that they don't really fit very well. It's hard to understand what's going on with them except to see them as being a problem. And so um, the two books I've written have been an attempt to uh, shift this uh, perspective so that we understand how people who move from place to place, what their priorities are, what their experiences of the world are. Uh, and so this uh, hopefully this comes through in the stories I tell in The Good Immigrants.
1: Mm-hmm. And this is really just- the uh, sort of the story of... of- Chinese coming to to the u s and, and you give us this interesting perspective you You talk about how there 's sort of the backdoor immigration and then there 's sort of the front door immigration, which would be sort of uh, you know, sort of uh, coming in uh, on illegal channels. It would be backdoor and then coming through obviously in sort of the, the normal type of ways you might think of, but then you introduce us to this uh, side door immigration, which was very important. Uh, to this group of people who came who came over to United States during this period, can you kind of talk about what what that means and what that looks like?
0: So, from the perspective of migration studies, a lot of times we focus on people who, um, from the beginning, are immigrants—people um, who you know do family reunification or through. Um, their jobs, or you know, whatever the the immigration laws are at that time come from the beginning and they're attempting to enter into the United States. Um, We haven't paid that much attention to students as a way of eventually becoming immigrants into this country because we assume that they're temporary migrants, right, so by its very nature. Uh, student international student populations are supposed to be here for a little while. Um, we also assume that um, they don't uh, aren't connected to uh, labor force issues because technically they're not supposed to work. Um, in many ways, they're seen as being exceptional in migration studies because uh, most people these days who come are going to go into higher education or graduate education, and they're seen as being relatively privileged. And so their story doesn't intersect with the main ebb and flow of how we've been thinking about immigration history, which, you know, if you think about sort of the classic texts, uh, we think about... Um, Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island, the poor working masses trying to get accepted. Uh, in the case of Asian American Studies, uh, there has been a lot of emphasis on the discrimination on the basis of race and national origin. And so these have been our priorities, which, uh, I mean, these are important areas of scholarship that they have obscured, I think, the ways in which immigration policy has evolved now. Uh, and so... What my book does is to uh, talk about uh, student international student migrations uh, and to try to consider the ways in which uh, this uh, very different attitudes towards international students. So the book points out that um, even at the height of the Chinese exclusion era, this is a period of time from 1882 to 1943. When Chinese play, probably faced the most severe uh, restrictions on their entry into the United States, uh, identified as a race of people, um, and this this discrimination has received the bulk of attention and scholarship. But what my book does is to say, even as this is going on, uh, contrary to what we might expect, uh, Chinese students, in fact, were um, always among the most numerous. Uh, of international students in the United States during the 19 teens, 20s, and 30s. And this had to do with a very different sort of view of, um, educated Chinese, of Chinese intellectuals, uh, as having the potential to adapt Western values, Western civilization, and being much more compatible, uh, and not, uh, sort of this, these working class coolies who were seen as racially inassimilable. It also had to do with, uh, there was a great deal of missionary investment in China. China was the biggest field of missionary activity on the part of Americans. And uh, there was a lot of overlap between missionaries and higher education establishments in the United States. And so, you know, the YMCA, the Institute for International Education, um, these very influential entities actually developed a lot of programs to try to help uh, Chinese students come and study to the United States. This was not entirely uh, without self-interest. Uh, educating uh, Chinese here was seen as a means of um, cultivating influence on what was seen as China's leadership class. And so the idea was that the students would come, they would be exposed to the United States and its advanced civilization, and then they would go back to China and shape China to be in sympathy uh, and under this way of the United States. Um, you know, so we have these longer-term roots, which is a very different story from what we've paid attention to um, in in most texts. Uh, Chinese students, international students, are seen as outside our story of Asian Americans, much less the United States. Uh, this shifts into a story of immigration, though, with World War II and the Cold War, uh, because um, events in China. Um, turn these students into refugees Um, with the Sino-Japanese War, and then with the eventual communist victory in China, uh, these students uh, fall into this position of not really having a home to return to. They already enjoy a great deal more sympathy in the United States. They also are just truly an elite, uh, just not only because of the education, but many of them were, super-talented. So we have people like I.M. Pei, the architect, uh, An Wang, the computer entrepreneur, they were all here during the 1940s. And the US government has a choice to make, whether or not to comply with the existing laws, which are widely understood to be racist, um, and force these people to go back to China which has become communist, or whether to find ways to allow them to stay. And I think there is a working out that making immigration laws on the basis of race and national origin, one, is uh, problematic when you're seeking to cultivate relationships, particularly,
1: you know, in Asia
0: and in third world countries. Uh, But also it doesn't make sense because... uh, sort of human potential, human capital, is not decided on the basis of race. And that there are, in fact, some individuals uh, with from all parts of the world who, in fact, would be tremendous uh, contributors to the United States. And so I think what my book tries to work through in the case of uh, Chinese students and intellectuals is how um, immigration restrictions based on race and national origin um, are eased out of the picture, that these can't be the governing priorities in terms of our immigration laws, and that we need to have some more egalitarian and rational measures for deciding who should be able to immigrate based on things like education, uh, employability, um, likelihood to help the United States. And so this is something we see happening leading up to 1965.
1: Right, right. That was a a, a great uh, just full cool blurb on on the book. Uh, certainly, if we could hop back into maybe some of, some of the more specific points uh, that I think that I mean, when when I was reading this, I, ser- I certainly or reading parts of it I certainly uh, what hadn't heard of before, hadn't heard maybe this perspective. So, uh, if we could maybe jump back to the Chinese Exclusion Act, I think that's something that a lot of people, uh, at least in, in in academic fields would certainly know about but uh you kind of describe it as it was sort of a, a sort of a, this diplomatic agreement between two countries where where China really thought they were sort of uh they looked at it a lot different than what how the sort of the United States interpreted it um can you kind of talk about maybe those those uh, diplomatic differences so the chinese
0: exclusion act is widely understood to be the earliest enforced U.S. immigration restriction. And it is, um, you know, therefore incorrectly seen as a major turning point in national history. When the United States decides it is going to shift from being the nation of immigrants with this open door, unrestricted admissions into a country that is going to start trying to control who can enter and who can also legally settle within this country. And you know, and after the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed in 1882, you have an expanding array of people who are targeted. But this all began with Chinese. Mm-hmm. Something that has dropped out of the picture, though, is, I mean, we most often understand the Chinese Exclusion Act as something that Congress passes. Um, but... Uh, I think it's also important to remember that at this juncture, uh, the United States government and internationally in general, there was not a real uh, consensus yet about what entities hold the power to actually impose immigration restrictions. And so with the 1882 uh, exclusion law, its the official title is uh, this is a um, approximation an act to enact treaty uh, agreements regarding restricting the migration of Chinese. And so before Congress and uh, the president of the United States, well it was mostly the President of the United States uh, thought that they could actually pass this law, they thought that they needed to work out get the agreement of the Chinese government that the United States is going to do this. So it, in fact, was preceded by a a treaty that was signed in 1880. Um, And the Chinese agreed to certain terms. um, And when the Chinese signed this treaty, they had no idea how strictly the United States was going to carry it out. And so one of the terms in the treaty was that there would be Six exempt classes, including merchants, family members, students, diplomats, tourists, and at that time, uh, returning laborers. Uh, So the Chinese government signs this. uh, They think that the main uh, intent of the law is so that the United States can restrict the entry of Chinese laborers. Uh, What happens in practice is that the law is interpreted as allowing only people of the six exempt classes enter the United States, and as the United States figures out that it has a lot of leeway actually to set the terms and to decide how to carry out the laws against Chinese, China at the time of a very weak nation, uh, the United States government claims an expanding array of powers uh, to um, enact and then enforce immigration controls. Uh, and across the 1890s, there are a series of court cases that go up to the Supreme Court, uh, which affirm the United States' sovereign power. And so and these are uh, legacies into the contemporary period. Uh, the United States government, federal government, retains for itself tremendous authority over um, control of border matters. And this is all rooted in uh, matters that were being worked out in terms of carrying out the Chinese exclusion laws.
1: Okay, That's and, so, and,
0: and so, basically, there is eventually a determination that, well, we don't have to decide immigration restrictions on the basis of treaty negotiations. Although this does happen in 1907, um, when Theodore Roosevelt brokers a deal with the Japanese government to mm. restrict Japanese immigration. Right. The difference was that Japan, at that time, was a rising world power. Uh, and so, the United States thought it should not offend the Japanese government. But in 1924, Congress goes ahead and passes a key law that, in fact, uh, bans all Asian immigration uh, completely, um, knowing that it will offend the Japanese government, uh, Japanese people. And, um, and it did. The Japanese government was very, very upset. Uh, people like Pearl Buck and Walter Judd in the 1940s uh, claimed that uh, the attack on Pearl Harbor happened because of the 1924 Immigration Act. Hmm. So the book is also trying to draw attention to the ways in which American immigration restrictions are also important matters in terms of foreign relations.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's, uh, that, that, that's, that's that's certainly a, an interesting allegory to, to kind of think about or to look into further. Uh, I do want to ask you, in in, in a lot of these chapters you hone in or focus on, on certain individuals whose experience sort of exemplifies what was going on uh, during these p- certain periods. Uh, one such interesting uh, character that, that you talk about is Meng uh and uh, the China Institute in America. So can you kind of maybe talk about uh, uh, why this individual is important and, and sort of the China Institute uh, is important as well? I was actually just there uh, a couple oh. of days ago. Uh, okay. So I, I, I'm Quite close to the to the China Institute.
0: So Meng Zhe is a, a fascinating character, and even based on my research, I think during the nineteen thirties, particularly in the East Coast um, New York area, he must have been a key representative of China, and to a certain extent, Chinese Americans, but more Chinese students. That you know, certainly influential uh, Americans would have known. I mean, he knew Eleanor Roosevelt, he knew all of these very well-connected people, not just in international education, but people involved with foundations, uh, people involved in uh, the State Department, and yet he appears nowhere in Asian American history. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I think this this oversight points to the ways in which we really haven't been focusing on um, students in international education. Now, uh, Mengzhi, uh helps us to understand just how uh, integrated Chinese students were as part of the international education establishment in um, the United States. So Mengzhi worked closely with the Institute for International Education. The head of the Institute for International Education was in a, pol- in a position to advise the State Department and the Immigration Bureau regarding uh, policies for international students. So in 1920, when there was a change in laws and the status of international students and their uh, experience of the United States was severely affected, um, it was this guy, whose name I'm forgetting, um, who uh, developed new policies and suggested them, and they were, in fact, adopted. Mm. Um, uh, So Mengzhi knew all of these people. Uh, Mengzhi while having a very good relationship with um, international education establishment in the United States, also worked very actively on behalf of China, trying to ensure that international education programs really serve the purposes of advancing Chinese interests in terms of trying to encourage uh, and train uh, Chinese elites. Uh, particularly, you see already this uh, inclination to... Uh, specialize in what are now considered STEM fields. um, So engineering, sciences, technical fields, but also things like um, uh, there was a certain amount of interest in the Census Bureau uh, in terms of administrative processes um, uh, to acquire skills and knowledge uh, that could help China in its quest for modernization. And he was very active in trying to secure these interests Um, He, himself, had uh, been a Boxer Immunity Fellow, he had studied in the United States versus Davidson College, and then at the uh, Columbia University's uh, Teacher's College. Uh, A great many uh, Chinese went through Columbia University's Teacher's College, uh, many of whom then went back to China and were instrumental in establishing higher education institutions in China. So there's a very close relationship here. Mengzhi was uh, very important, as was the uh, literary scholar uh, in terms of uh, trying to secure and redirect U.S. resources, supporting Chinese students uh, more towards being under the control of the Chinese government. Uh, And and Mengzhi, across the 1930s, very active in terms of representing China's perspective as the Japanese were ratcheting up their incursions into China. So he's a really key figure. And in 1937, um, he was positioned when many of the Chinese students in the United States found themselves to be in difficult circumstances because Japan had invaded China and they were cut off from resources. And it's Mengzhi who was had the connections to fundraise among both uh, Chinese and also American entities. Uh, to try to provide some uh, financial backup, uh, and as their situation is becoming, uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that they can't go back to China. Meng has stayed abreast of their situation, and he's keeping influential people informed. Uh, you know, and so Congress in 1948, 1950 will start taking measures. In fact, to provide financial support for the uh, what they're they're called the stranded students. Um, so financial support, but then also take legal steps to help them stay in the United States and at least be self-supporting. So they gain the right to legally seek employment. Um, but then uh, the longer term and pressing issue is that by 1955, there is an understanding that the Chinese Communist government is not going away. And that, whereas previously there was some hope that these Chinese students and intellectuals could return to a China led by the nationalists, that uh, in 1955 there was a realization this wasn't going to happen. But for them to actually be able to change their status and gain U.S. citizenship was a tricky matter. And so there is a working out of this problem. It applies pressure for reform of general immigration laws, which don't actually happen until 1965, but this is one of the contributing factors, that when you have people who face severe immigration restrictions because of their race, but on an individual basis of of such outstanding abilities, um, should not immigration laws take that into consideration? And we see this happening more with the 1965 Immigration Act. Hmm.
1: Right, right. And I'm... And I'm Glad you, Glad you uh, had, uh, mentioned Teachers College. Uh, I'm sitting here right now, actually, uh, as as we're doing this interview, and we're certainly very proud of our history of uh, with uh, the Chinese students who came over here uh, at the early part uh, of the 20th century. Uh, if I could, could we uh, maybe talk? Whip to skip over maybe some parts, you know, Su uh, Su Ling and and her sort of influence. But if if we could maybe talk about that idea of uh, refugee and, and intellectual and sort of how uh, maybe jumping past the idea of what what a refugee refugee is into this other kind of um, uh, immigrant if you if we can call it something like that um, and, and and I think you, you do use I M Pei as as an example there can you maybe talk about that a little bit more? So
0: the um well. The category of refugee is something that's also getting worked out kind of at the same time across the uh, 1930s, 40s, and 50s. And the challenge in terms of Chinese was that pretty much in the eyes of the United States and also the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, um, the definition of refugees was not established in a way that applied to those in Asia. Mm. And the struggle was to get this recognition. Uh, so we think of refugee as a way of extending compassion and humanitarian outreach and relief to people in need. But in practice, from the very beginning, it's been a highly politicized term. And those people who qualify are Refugees, and we see this to this day, are generally those people who are considered to have strategic interests, you know, to the nation in question. You know, and we see this all the time um, in the case of the United States. Now what happens in the nineteen fifties is that the United States is prepared to extend refugee admissions uh, but to its what it considers its chief allies um, uh, in Europe. And the Congressman Walter Judd from Minnesota, uh, who has this background of having been a missionary in China, spoke Chinese, was considered a great authority on East Asia, kept pressing the United States. Uh, Walter Judd has a very interesting history. He also proposes certain key measures in terms of limited immigration reforms. But with regard to refugees, uh, he pressed Congress strongly, saying we have to make at least a gesture. Uh, to our Asian allies. And so in the 1953 uh, Refugee Act, um, there is a total of something like 214,000 refugee visas that are provided. Uh, just through the force of his argument, uh, originally there were no refugee visas that were going to go to Asia, but uh, Walter Judd presses the point that we need to give at least some gesture to our Asian allies, especially in the context of the um, uh, deepening Cold War uh, that we are concerned for them, um, something like 5,000 are allocated to the Far East, 3,000 specifically for Chinese. Mm-hmm. And so it's a very low number. Um, Hong Kong at that time was already understood to be, uh, be placed place suffering the most severe refugee problems. Something like up to 1.5 million Chinese refugees right. were in that city alone. And it was, you know, it was still not a very developed place. Uh, even though now that we look at Hong Kong, we think of it as being fabulously wealthy. Back then it was still um, not, um, it had not yet um, gotten its footing. Right um, Now, so this reflects a congressional working out that, you know, we don't have to have an absolute bar on Asian immigration. We can just admit very limited numbers of people, and that could show that we're actually we're not racist because they get to come in. And so it's a gesture towards a kind of reform. Um, And there's also this realization which... um, happened through this organization that I write about called Aid Refugee Chinese Intellectuals, which uh, on the surface was supposed to be a non-profit, non-governmental humanitarian organization uh, trying to help Chinese refugees, uh, but it's actually was State Department funded. Um, I figured out that at least a couple of the staffers, maybe even three or four, were CIA oh, uh, oh. representatives. And, um, and and the very title uh, tells you what the effort was a refugee Chinese intellectual. even though Chinese are getting so few refugee visas, the effort was to try to identify Chinese refugees with you know not only the correct political background but with some level of college education and to try to get as many other refugee visas uh, directed towards Chinese intellectuals as possible. And there was this um, frank analysis. So you admit these limited numbers of Chinese refugees in hopes of showing Chinese overseas in general that the United States is concerned, uh, that they should turn away from communism, they should remain part of the free world. Um, but also there was this um, rationalization that they these, Chinese refugees, in fact, the agenda for them, very different from the past, was to show to the American people that they could be readily absorbed into the United States. Mm. And if you look at the criteria of the refugee program, um, you know, in addition to having a demonstrated uh, political history of flight from communism, you also had to prearrange your employment in the United States. You had to have a sponsor who was a U.S. citizen who would guarantee that you wouldn't go on to welfare. You wouldn't become a public liability. Um, you also had to um, uh, pay your own travel costs. Okay, And so all of this serves to demonstrate that, well, we can admit these refugees and they will be of low impact, uh, that they can be readily absorbed into the United States. And so one of the things that happened with um refugee Chinese intellectuals is that uh, it got a certain number, um, like maybe 2,500 uh, Chinese into the United States, and, and uh, it tracked everybody. One, to make sure they repaid their travel loans, but then the other part of it was that as soon as they became eligible to apply for U.S. citizenship, they were reminded to do so. So I have an article about them. Uh, called The Disappearance of uh, the Chinese Refugees. And the question is, well, why haven't we paid more attention to them? Because there ends up being about 35,000 of them between 1948 through um, 1966, which, considering the size of the Chinese population at that time, is a pretty significant number. But we really have not talked about them in textbooks or in historical um, accounts And I think this was actually intentional, that this population was meant to come to the United States and just be absorbed very Mm -hmm. easily. And part of this had to do with um, showing that the United States was actually functioning as a multiracial democracy, that it could absorb all of these Chinese. Um, But there's also this kind of slate of hand in that the people, the Chinese who are getting admitted are exactly the kinds of people who would Most readily be able to find certain kinds of jobs. There was also an explicit calculation that educated Chinese, you know, educated people from any part of the world, would be the types to ensure that their children would also be well educated and would, you know, attain socioeconomic mobility. And so the seeds of the model minority happen not just at the point of deciding who actually is in a position to immigrate, you know, what level of education, what kind of employability qualify you to immigrate, but also extending down to the production of a second generation, uh, later generations who will also already be, uh, have high uh, cultural capital and already be very much set uh, to enter the middle class. Right. I, I
1: think, I think, That leads us into our, uh, maybe our last chapter, uh, or the last chapter of the book, and and just talking about the, uh, you call it the American marketplace of of brains. And if you could uh, maybe just talk about sort of, I I think you specifically mentioned sort of these neoliberal ideas of of, uh, of immigration and and H 1B visas. Can you kind of talk about how that idea also plays into the uh, model minority and what we already sort of built on?
0: So, uh, John F. Kennedy, as a senator and as a president, had been working on immigration reform throughout the 1950s and, you know, up until his assassination. And he was constantly trying to work out, well, what are, if we want to get rid of and need to get rid of the very difficult and problematic emphasis on race and national origins, which are the main ways in which immigration controls are framed, what are alternatives? sets of principles that we can apply? What are other kinds of priorities? He really uh, tried to push the emphasis on, well, we need to have immigration laws that really serve the economic and political interests of the United States. And so we have this growing shift um, away from race and national origins and towards occupation and employability. We actually see this in the 1952 General Immigration Act, um, which introduces a preference system, and the first preference is for certain kinds of occupations. And this also pulls in the Department of Labor, which can, you know, decide what are the occupations that are most highly valued and uh, in which we have gaps in the American economy. So this um, means that if you are an immigrant population, um, those who actually qualify to enter the United States um, are very much um, governed by uh, these sets of limitations of who qualifies. Uh, and because the Asian American population is so predominantly immigrant, it's at about 70%, um, you have this, um, you know, and it, it should be obvious, but I don't think it necessarily registers. We have this obvious skewing towards people who are highly educated, who are located in certain uh, fields where workers are highly contested. Many people are knowledge workers. Mm-hmm. And so, um, the uh, category of model minority, we have all of this statistical evidence that shows very high levels of attainment of college degrees, high concentration in white-collar and professional jobs, um, all of these markers of uh, socioeconomic success. But in the case of many Asian Americans, uh, this was a prerequisite before they could come into the United States, uh, before they could even emigrate. And so if we see Asian Americans as being so highly achieving, it's not necessarily because, I mean, there are opportunities in the United States, you know, they're being brought here to work in certain kinds of jobs, um, but it's not that somehow they are, there is an American system that produces them and uh, facilitates their success. Uh, it has to do with um, the uh, condition, conditions that attended their immigration. And so it's really the importation of a highly achieving population uh, as opposed to uh, a demonstration that American systems, in terms of education, in terms of um, fostering, nurturing of its own domestic populations, uh, is well-functioning. Um, so this is one of the uh, contradictions that I am trying to point up in uh, drawing this connection between international education and our immigration policy. Uh, and the kinds of immigrants that are uh, encouraged and allowed to come into the United States. Um, I also try to point to the reality that, you know, it's only certain kinds of occupations that qualify you for uh, immigrant status. I mean, there are many, many people who are in the United States who are able to find employment, but they don't aren't able to get the kind of employment in which their employers uh, are going to help them process all of the paperwork, nor would they qualify in terms of the kinds of employment uh, designated by the Department of Labor as uh, making you suited to get immigrant status. So um, it is trying to uh, point out certain kinds of relationships and also certain kinds of assumptions that we make about uh, what uh, should be our priorities in immigration laws. And I, I think I'm not trying to say that we should necessarily change the immigration laws, but we should um, acknowledge the kinds of biases and some of the ways in which they play out in our current system.
1: Hmm. All right. That, that's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, we're we're kind of coming to the end of the interview, though. Um, if you could, maybe just a, a final word on the book uh, for our audience. And also, the, we, we always have this final question on the network. Uh, what are you working on next? Uh, I know you, this has just got published, but uh, I'm sure you have something else out there, uh, whether it's just a research topic or, or something that's far on the horizon, if you could.
0: Uh, I have just completed a draft of a manuscript for the Oxford series, a very short introduction. So I have written a very short introduction to general Asian American history. I think the press is hoping to get that out in uh, 2016. So it's kind of an overview of main themes. I am also uh, co-editing an anthology, uh, thinking about uh, shifts in—it's a comparative anthology, thinking broadly across Asian, Latino, uh, Caribbean, um, uh, patterns of how people are being racialized. And how this is intersecting with uh, immigration policies and practices. Because we think, me and my co-editors think that before 1965, a lot of times 1965 Immigration Act is attributed with enacting major reforms in terms of immigration law in the United States. Uh, Some people consider it one of the components of, uh, key components of civil rights reforms Um, in the 1960s, but what we're trying to explore and illuminate is that uh, decades beforehand, uh, we're starting in the 1920s, there were already changing ideas about racial differences, uh, how you explain them, how they get enacted in terms of inequality, uh, views of immigration policy, views of citizenship and belonging. And we are trying to bring together a group of scholars who are working in all these different areas of immigration and ethnicity. Um, a lot of times people really just work on specific populations and we are trying to be able to bring together a broad array of scholarships so we can make a more general kind of statement of uh, the remaking of racial formations and immigration law leading up to 1965.
1: Alright, fantastic. Well, we'll look out for uh, both of those pieces. They certainly sound interesting. Uh, but I want to encourage uh, our audience to go check out The Good Immigrants, How the Yellow Peril Became the Model Minority, Princeton University Press 2015, and I want to thank uh, Dr. Madeline Shu, uh, for joining me today, and uh, to all the audience out there, I hope you learned something.